Exodus chapter 3 is where we are at. The idea of God speaking to us, like if he talked to us, like how would we expect him to do that? Like what would we expect him to say? Like what tone would we expect him to use? Uh, do we expect him to speak at certain times or, or certain areas or through certain means? And then after he tells you what he wants to tell you, here's what I was really thinking. How do you expect to feel? And this is why I started thinking about it in that context, right? After someone speaks to you, I don't know if you've ever had this um, experience before, but there's like some people that like you talk to them and after you get done talking to them, you're like, that was amazing, right? It's just like a hug for your soul. And there's other people you talk to and you get done with it. It's like, that was not amazing. That made me feel terrible. Like they were like a spider and just sucked all the life right out of me, right? So... How do you expect, after you speak to God, after he tells you what he wants to tell you, what do you expect to feel in that moment? Because I had this experience about six months ago. I went to a dentist. Uh, the dentist was recommended by somebody, and I show up, and they do their dentist things, and they're, like, taking pictures of my teeth and stuff like that. And uh, I haven't been to the dentist in a while, so it was, like, a new dentist, and this person was like, yeah, they're great. And I was like, okay. So they show up, and they take all the pictures, and then they put the pictures up on this giant flat screen TV in front of me, which up until that point I didn't realize it was there, but there's like a mat, like this big flat screen TV right in front of me, and they start putting my pictures up on the thing, and they're flipping through, and like giant pictures of your teeth are not flattering to anybody, <laughs> but I've done like some photography stuff just in my work with church and things like that. And like there's a lot of graphics design stuff that's involved in like church stuff. And so I know a little bit as far as like a hobbyist on like photography. And one of the things that you kind of pick up on once you get into photography a little bit is there's two things that people mess with quite a bit. It's the contrast and the saturation. And the contrast is what makes the brights bright and the darks dark, right? So if you turn up the contrast, the bright parts are going to be brighter. The dark parts are going to be darker. If you turn up the saturation, there's going to be more of every kind of color. It's just like all the colors up. Well, your teeth are white. Right? So if you crank up the contrast and you crank up the saturation, whatever's on that screen is going to look terrible. And like, I'm not trying to make myself look better here. The lady's flipping through these, and as soon as she starts flipping through these pictures on this giant flat screen TV in front of me, I can tell that they have cranked up the contrast and the saturation on the TV. And I was like, that feels a little manipulative. Right? And so she flips through like these seven pictures and she's like telling me, oh, yeah, here, oh, this is good. Good job here. Oh, this is, you could floss better on this third tooth from the back, blah, blah. And then she goes through all seven of them and then she goes, the dentist is going to be in in just a minute, which they always do, whatever. And then she leaves it. She flips back to the worst picture out of all the seven and just leaves it on that screen and walks away. And then leaves the door open behind her. Right? So everybody walking down the hall is like looking in, and I got this big fat TV sized thing of my nasty teeth on the screen, and I'm just feeling awful for the next 20 minutes. And I know exactly what they were doing. It was pretty manipulative. Right? Like, hey, we're going to make your teeth look worse than they are. We're going to put them on a giant screen. We're going to have 75 people walk by the door that's open. And then we're going to have the dentist walk in and be like, it's going to be a million dollars. Do you want to do it or not? Of course I want to do it. I just had to look at my nasty teeth for 20 minutes. I ended up getting my teeth cleaned. I paid that dentist a bunch of money. I didn't feel great about it at all. 
And I think sometimes we think about that, we think that God interacts with us like that, right? He's like gonna tell us stuff we need to know, like we know we already should be doing, like you've been flossing twice a day? Yeah, really, twice? No. Once? No. Do you own floss, right? Like God's gonna like go down the thing, like, and make you feel bad and make you think about things you already know you should be doing. And then at the end of it, you'll probably feel a little better, but you'll kind of also feel a little worse. Like, and when we see God actually interacting with people, it's not like that at all. And, and the reason I ask the question, because if we're going to understand how God communicates with us, it's really important because you become like the God you are worshiping. Right, so if you think the God you're worshiping is manipulative and guilt-ridden and like angry, then you're going to portray that. If you think he's a rules-based, like really upset, like just the way you think of God is going to come out in how you live your life and who you start to become. And so, so this morning, we're going to take a look at this entire encounter between Moses and God, okay? So we're going to read a lot. And I know it's a lot, but you're a big girl. You can handle it, right? We're going to start at the beginning of chapter 3. We're going to go all the way through uh, verse 20 of chapter 4. Like, you're, you're like, a chapter and a half? Yes, a chapter. I know. We've spent the last four weeks doing, like, three verses at a time. We're going to do the whole thing. And I, here's why. I think there's some really valuable things that you can do that you can understand about interacting with God by looking at the thing as a chunk, as a whole. And so here's what I want to point out as we're reading through. I timed it, by the way, four minutes and 47 seconds. Can you guys all hang with me for that? Right? It's going to feel like an eternity when we do it, but we're, we're going to live. I promise we're going to live. Here's what I want you to understand as we go through. Look, look for these things as we go through it. God's going to repeat himself. A couple of different times. He's going to repeat himself. You just said that. You just said that. You just said that. That should stick out to you. Because if you repeat yourself, you're doing it for a reason. And then second, I want you to pay attention to what Moses says. Like the things that Moses actually speaks back to God in this passage. So here we go. I'm actually even going to make it worse than what I said. Start at chapter 3, and I want you to go up three verses into chapter 2. So we're going to start chapter 2, verse 23. Here we go. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up before God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Chapter 3, verse 1, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. 
Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, Moses, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain." Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say to this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what was done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elder of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. And so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put out your hand, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some of the water from the Nile River and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I am not eloquent, neither in past nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with the mouth. 
I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. And he shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. So verse 18, Moses went back to Jethro's father-in-law and to him. He said, please go, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. The first thing I told you to be on the lookout for as we were reading that whole passage was times that God repeated himself. God repeats himself on a couple different things. We're going to talk about two of them. First is the idea that he is observing what is happening in the people of Israel. In fact, in the passage we just read, 11 different times God says, I have seen what's going on with the people of Israel. 11 times, that's a lot of times in this short passage to make a comment about the oppression, the slavery, the affliction. I hear the cry, they're calling for rescue. 11 different times God says this. And what's interesting is not only does he say something about it 11 times, the words that he uses when he talks about it are very dramatic and weighty words. There's not minimizing here. He doesn't say it's really unfortunate what clearly something has gone awry. It's a bad situation. No, he doesn't minimize like that. God uses strong language, like as strong of language as he could possibly use. He uses the words oppression and bondage. He talks about people crying out for help, crying for rescue. Then he uses the words affliction, groaning, suffering, deliverance, oppression again. Actually, two more times he used the words oppression. He's not, he's not glossing over this at all. And this should get our attention because one, God repeats it 11 times, and two, God doesn't waste words. If he's repeating himself, not only does he have a good reason, if he's using these very emotionally charged and weighty words to describe the situation, this should get our attention. So the question is why? Why is God repeating himself so often about seeing the people of Israel, and why is he using these very heavy emotional like weighty words. I think the answer comes when we consider who he's talking to. God is talking to Moses, right? Think about Moses. Think about what we know about Moses. We don't know a ton about him so far. But one of the few pieces of information that we do know about Moses is that he felt the weight of this oppression and bondage very strongly. And he was very passionate and actually ended up killing a man because of the weight that he felt of his people being in bondage and afflicted and oppressed by the Egyptians. So this is not a guy who this is a small deal to. This is huge to Moses. He actually killed a man because of it. So in this struggle and this pain, like this is very near to the heart of Moses. And when you're talking to someone about something they care deeply about, it's going to take a lot of effort to communicate that you understand them. We all get that, right? How different would this be if, if, if God was just like, yeah, Moses, I heard you got yourself in a bit of a pickle. Moses is like, I killed a guy over this. A bit of a pickle? Like, are you kidding me? Like, people are dying. People are being beaten. They're murdering children back in Egypt. 
I think God is trying to communicate that he understands to Moses. In fact, I know that's what God is trying to communicate because that's what he said at the end of chapter 2. It leads to this whole encounter. Look at the end of chapter 2. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Right? So this interaction that God has with Moses, whatever else he's trying to accomplish, which there's a lot of great stuff in here, he's trying to communicate to Moses. He understands. He gets it. I, I see where you're at, Moses. And it's a huge contrast with my trip to the dentist, right? God's not trying to manipulate Moses into something here. He's just not trying to get to some certain kind of an outcome. Moses is interacting with a God who is trying to communicate understanding of the situation. I see you, Moses. I see your pain. I see how hard this is for you and your people. And in order to communicate that to God, or to Moses, in order to communicate that understanding, God gets that this is a big deal to Moses. So God speaks about it as if it's a big deal. I bring that up because I think Christians sometimes give off the impression that none of our problems are a big deal to God. And I don't think it's malicious. I really don't. I think it's well-intentioned. We get the idea that God is big and awesome and omnipotent and all-knowing and like all this stuff. And like, God's incredible. Like, he didn't, he didn't, none of this is hard for him. And you know who that feels really crappy to? The person going through something and that something feels like a very big deal to them. <laughs> like, oh yeah, it's not a big deal. God can handle all of that. God actually doesn't give off the impression that none of this is a big deal to him. He gives off the impression that it's a very big deal to him. And actually, if you look through your scripture, this is not an isolated incident. There is story after story after story of God finding people in their struggle and meeting them where they're at. And some of these are really small instances where you're like, that shouldn't be a big deal to God. But God makes it a big deal to himself because he cares about the people. You think of Hagar, Abraham's discarded concubine. You think about Leah, the wife of Jacob, who was not the pretty one, right? So Jacob didn't love her as much. You think about David, who's like the forgotten son of Jesse. Jesse's like, here's all my sons. And like, they're like, there's not another one? And, oh, yeah, there's a runt out there in the woods, right? Like, you think about the lady with the issue of blood in the Gospels, bleeding for a long time, couldn't figure it out. You think about the guy by the pool of Bethesda, the blind man who was sitting by the temple gates in the book of Acts for 38 years. People are like, where'd that blind man go? Don't even know his name. Over and over and over, you see story after story about story of God in the Bible meeting people in their struggle, understand, understanding their hardship. And it's like, as God's using this language, God wants you to know this about him, that it's a big deal to him. It's like God wants you to know he understands. And here's the big issue. It's important to understand, like we said earlier, what God is like because we become like the God we worship. So if we think that none of this is a big deal to God, then we justify our worship of God in saying none of it's a big deal to us. Right? Be like, oh, I'll get over it, man. Right? I was having a conversation with a buddy this week, and he used the phrase that we've all heard probably, rub some dirt on it and let's go. And I think sometimes we think God's like that. Like, I don't know what you're whining about follower of me, rub some dirt on it, let's go. We don't actually see that when we talk with God. We don't actually see that in the scriptures. And here's why. 
the second thing that God repeats himself over and over about, 11 times he says, I see the oppression. I see the affliction. It's really hard, Moses. As deeply and painfully as I can describe it, I will. And then he repeats himself about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob thing. Did you see him repeating himself? Like every once in a while he just breaks into Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's like this, like, I don't know, why are you doing that, God? We know their stories. We know that God did cool stuff with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what's the deal? Why do you need to repeat yourself over and over about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why? In fact, like, I like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're great, but they're not the coolest stories in the Old Testament. Like, if we're talking about cool stories, why don't we bring up Noah? Why aren't you saying, I'm the God of Noah? Noah's story is way cooler than Abraham's story. I'm just saying, right? Or what about Enoch? Enoch's that guy in the Old Testament. He was so godly, like, one day he just went to heaven. He's one of only two people in the whole Old Testament that didn't die. He's just, like, walking with God, and he's like, gold streets, cool. This is better, right? So he was just gone. Why don't we, why doesn't he say, I'm the God of Enoch? He sounds like a much better dude than Jacob. Jacob was a like dirty, rotten weasel, like the whole time. Here's why God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and why he repeats himself as often as he does about it. It's because God made a covenant to these men. God made a promise. God is being faithful and coming through on his word. Like, like this is a big deal to God that you know he is a God that fulfills his promises, that you know he is a covenant-keeping God. He, he's referencing these men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who know him as a covenant-keeping God. And he's actually going to do this same thing throughout your Bible. He's going to keep referencing back these men who know him as a covenant-keeping God. He's going to keep doing this over and over and over through the whole Old Testament because he wants the world to know he's a covenant-keeping God. So remember last week when we talked about the idea that God is incomparable and without equal and because of the limitations of our little tiny brains, we don't really understand any concept of the entirety of who God is. We're like, bah. right? He's just like, huge. We do know this about him. He keeps his word. We might not know very much about the nature of God, but we do know that he is faithful. If he says he's going to do something, he's going to come through on it. And he thinks it's a really important idea that you know that about him. I think that's a big deal. Like when we see God repeat himself, it's like, man, God really wants us to know he's a covenant-keeping God. Okay, so the second thing I told you to pay attention to after the things that God repeats about himself is what Moses says to God. And this is interesting because I took them all, I took all the things Moses said. Moses only says like five sentences actually, maybe six, but he doesn't say very much in this encounter. So I put them all together and I like paraphrased a little bit, but here's what Moses said to God in the whole thing. I don't think I'm the guy to do this. If I come to the people and they question me, what should I say to them? I don't think they're gonna listen to me. I think they're gonna say, God didn't come to you. I'm not a good speaker. In fact, I have a speech impediment. Please send someone else. <laughs> That's the interaction, right? A lot of faith here, right? The Pentecostals would be like, this is why you suck, Moses, right? You don't have any faith. No, like Moses is basically complaining to God. Five times Moses brings up another thing to complain to God about why he shouldn't do the thing God has called him to do. And again, back to our question, how do we expect God to speak to us? 
some of us expect God to sound a lot like our parents. Because I said so. What do you mean? I don't want to. Like, if anyone on the planet had a reason to say, because I said so, it's God, right? Like, that's a pretty good reason. And yet he doesn't use that excuse here. God doesn't say that to Moses. He listens to Moses and addresses his concerns five times in a row. Now, this is crazy to me because I recently have a teenager and I have the best teenager in the whole world. But still, there is no way I'm going to listen to him complain about the thing I've asked him to do five times. Right? If I'm like, hey, clean your room. And he's like, but I might listen to the first one. And if I answer the first one, he's like, and also I might listen to the second one. There's zero chance for getting to five before I say, go clean your room. Right? There's no chance. I don't know. You guys all had parents. How many of your parents let five go? Right? And, and that's, I'm like kind of a jerk. So I'm more conflict okay with than most people. I'll be like, no, get out. Even if you're like the anti-conflict parent, you'll give up before you get to five. Right? If you're the no conflict parent and your kid's like, no, I don't want to. And you're like, please. And you're like, no, I don't want to. You'll actually just let them go. You're like, okay, don't do it. Right? So there's no way, no matter which kind of parent you are, you're going to get to five. And yet God here is listening to Moses, addressing his concern, listening to Moses, addressing his concern, and at the end of it, still calling him to obedience. It's crazy. I listed him out. Moses says, who am I, God? I don't think I could do this. God says, I will be with you, Moses. Moses says, what do I do if they ask who sent me? God says, the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great I am. That's who sent you. And then he actually gives him his name. Then Moses says, they won't believe me. They'll say the Lord didn't appear to you. And God goes through and gives Moses three different miracles. A staff that turns into a snake, a hand that has leprosy, water turned into blood. And God says, if they don't believe the miracles, do the first one, do the second one, do the third one. Right? Then Moses says, I'm not actually a good enough talker to do this. And the funny thing is, Moses says, I'm slow of speech and of tongue. He's not just like, I don't know what I'd say. He's not like public speaking scared. Most historians think he's actually referencing like a legitimate speech impediment. So he's not just like, oh, I'm not good at this. Like the humble brag people that are just like, don't want to do it. He actually has like a physical impairment probably. And God's like, this was just a great answer. I made men's mouths, Moses. Like, I get, you think I can handle it? Like, whoa, like, yeah. Again, I don't want to give off the idea that it's not a big deal to God because he actually addresses the concern, but that's the answer. He's like, Moses, what are you concerned about? I'm the one who made you be able to speak at all. It's not a limitation for me. And then Moses says, please send someone else. Now, this one is interesting because God does get angry, but even in his anger, he still addresses Moses' concern and says, I'm going to send Aaron with you. Right? When I get angry, I'm not listening. Hey, clean your room. No, clean your room. I can't. Clean your room. Let me finish this video game. Right? Like, once I get to angry, there's no, like, hey, let me address your video game concerns. Like, what's your score right now? This is good. Like, there's none of that. So, you know, we live in America, which is very productivity driven our culture is and, and we measure ourselves very often by how much we can get done and if we can get more done in less time then we're all for that it's called efficiency right and the problem is while efficiency is highly valued in our culture relationships are terribly inefficient 
Like, like actually having a relationship with another human being is not an efficient process, and you actually can't be efficient with people. And if you don't believe me and you're married, try this. Uh, tomorrow night before the football game, get home and say, honey, I have seven minutes before I got to go downstairs and watch the game. I would like you to feel cared for, loved, understood, and supported in the next seven minutes so I can go see who wins. How many wives are like, yeah, that sounds reasonable? No, no, but even, like, you don't even have to be married. Like, there's no single ladies in here that's like, be still my heart, that sounds amazing. Nobody, <laughs> right? You can't be efficient with relationships, and God is a God who's actually not efficient here with Moses. There's no, because I said so, there's no rubs and dirt on it, let's go. There's no, like, impatience here. God is not scared of an inefficient conversation with Moses. God is not scared of a process of growth with Moses. Let's not forget, Moses has been out in the desert for 40 years. God's been waiting a long time. You know what's interesting? God's not scared of something taking a long time. We're very scared of things taking a long time. Like, we're gonna, God's like, what? You're gonna what? Right? Like, I made you. If I want to make you live 10, longer, 10 more years and make those years healthy years to do what I want to do in your life, I could do it like that. Right? All the things we worry about, if it takes too long, if we run out of time, what if it's un inconvenient or uncomfortable or it's a process, none of those things are a worry to God. So where does that leave us? God comes to Moses God tries to communicate to Moses that he sees and hears the people of Israel. He understands Moses' frustration and pain. God reminds Moses he's in a faith, that he is a faithful, covenant-keeping God. Moses has real concerns. God doesn't dismiss any of those concerns. He listens to Moses. He addresses the concerns. So now what? Moses feels seen and heard and understood and lives happily ever after. No, that's actually not what happens. Now Moses has a choice to make. Is he or is he not going to be obedient to what God called him to do? Is he or is he not going to do what God has called him to do? Moses, at this point, knows something of God. At this moment, he knows about God. But it's not close to what Moses is going to know about God by the end of his life. When we fast forward, we actually sing a song sometimes of worship called the Song of Moses. And he starts that song at the end of his life. And he says, I will ascribe greatness to our God. I will tell you how great our God is. After the end, like we know what's in the book of Exodus, right? The 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the water from the rock, the 40 years of manna in the desert, the, the promised land, like all the stuff that God does. Like, and Moses gets the end of his life. He says, let me ascribe how good our God is, right? So in those 40 years, like where he is now at the burning bush to the end of his life when he writes, let me tell you how good God is, there's a lot going on there. But it all happens because Moses decides he's going to be obedient. And Moses steps out of this knowledge of God that's just information and into this knowledge of God that's experience. He says, I'm actually going to put my money where my mouth is and do what I know I should do and experience the goodness of God, not just know about the goodness of God. Experience the God who loves and cares for and understands me, not just know about the God who loves and cares. Like, experience the covenant-keeping God and his faithfulness, not just know theoretically that God is a covenant-keeping God. 
Remember, this is the story of how the people of God become the people of God. And the people of God are not just called to know about God. They're invited into an experience with God. They're invited into experience the covenant-keeping God in their lives. So what does Moses do? Look at it at verse 18 of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 18. Underline this in your Bible because I think you might skip it without realizing how big of a deal it is. Moses went. Moses went. That's a really big deal. And, and here's why it's such a big deal. At the end of the conversation, Moses has, Moses has a choice to make. Are you going to walk in obedience or are you not going to walk in obedience? If Moses were to understand what God is asking him to do, but stay in the desert, that was actually also a choice. So Moses can't just be like, oh, yeah, I'll do it sometime. That's a choice, right? God says, Moses, go. And so if he were to be like, oh, I know God's telling me to go, but I'll do it later, that is a choice. There's a choice to be made in this passage no matter what you think of it. There's, there's no middle ground. You can't sit on the fence. You are either going to do or not do what God is calling you to do. There's no like half doing, right? Moses is either going to go or not go. He can't kind of go. And also, knowing you should go is not the same thing as going. I, I think we do that a lot in church. I went to church. I know what I should do. You realize that's not the same thing as doing what you know you should do, right? Because it's not the same thing. Like just knowledge of knowing what God is calling you to do is not the same thing as doing what God has called you to do. And so the question is, is Moses going to surrender or not surrender? There has to be a point where Moses understands who God is and what he knows about God works its way into an act of his will and changes his actions. The people of God do not become the people of God on accident. Please write that down. No, nobody's going to be like, oh, yeah, I just ended up in heaven somehow. Awesome. Right? Maybe like some aborted babies or something. Like I'm praying that's what happens with them. I, there's scriptural evidence that's probably what happens with them. But like for us who have free will and exercise these things in life, like you don't end up there on accident. You make a choice to follow the God that you know exists or not follow the God that you don't think exists. You know, God didn't have to do it like this if he didn't want to. The whole thing could have been a giant coincidence. Moses could have woken up one day and just felt like he should go back to Egypt. You're like, I don't know, but I just feel like it's too cold down here. I'm going to go back to the Mediterranean. That was sweet. Right? He just could have wandered back. And like, when he gets over there, he's like, you know what? I'm going to help these guys out. Like, it could have been a giant coincidence, but that's not how God chose to do it. He chose to call Moses and give Moses the clear choice to go or not to go, the clear call to obedience. And Moses went. And that's a really crucial part of the story, that moment when you, by an act of your will, choose obedience. And Moses went, and it's an outward indication of something that's going on in Moses' heart. Now, what's interesting is, even though God answered all of Moses' concerns, when Moses was like, I don't think I should go. Please send someone else. I don't think I'm good enough. There were some of those answers to the questions that I'm sure Moses didn't like. Like the part where God was like, actually, Pharaoh's not going to let you go. Moses was like, wait, 
that's supposed to make me feel better? No, it didn't make him feel better. But he did, God did at least hear Moses' heart and address his concerns. And at the end of it, Moses decides to make a choice to do what God has called him to do. And, and this is not an isolated incident. God continues to work like this in his people. That's why all through the New Testament, when people begin to trust in God with their lives, the New Testament church leaders all say the same thing. Repent and be baptized. Make a choice. Go do this thing that shows what you understand is going to work its way into the way you live your life. That's where it starts. Make a choice to surrender to God, and there should be an outward indicator that something has changed inside of you. That's what baptism is. For the New Testament church, like we said, that's why we baptize people in this church. Because we want to make it clear that you not doing what God has called you to do is a choice. Making the outward sign that like, I'm in. That's why our shirts say, I'm all in, right? I'm doing what God is calling me to do. It's how God has worked in his people forever. He's seen them. He's understood them. He's heard them. He's been patient with them. He's meet, met them where they are at. And then he's called them to make a choice. And for Moses, the sign that he had made that choice was he went back to Egypt. For Jesus, he tells us the sign of the world that we have made that choice is baptism. It's why we make it a regular part of what we do at this church. We worship God by celebrating people who are stepping into that life of obedience by making an outward choice. And maybe you've been baptized before, and you're like, sweet, I don't have to come next week. That's a complete misunderstanding of why we do it in public. Right? This is such a good reminder. We've talked over and over and over about how you as a Christian or as a human have a terrible memory. So when you come to church next week and you're like, I've already been baptized, and you see people making that choice for the first time, it's such a good reminder to be like, am I still doing what I say I'm doing? Am I still living and surrendering my will to Jesus? Or did I somewhere along the way take that back? Did I think it was a driver's license test where I just like, oh yeah, God, you can have it. And you're like, actually, I want it back. Because this is the beginning of a life where God is going to continually call Moses to do the thing he has called him to do. And Moses is going to have to surrender to a lot of hardship, a lot of difficulty, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fearful circumstances in order to see God's work take place in his life. And such a great thing happens when you watch other people take that step is not only do you reflect on the moment you took that step, but you get encouraged that you can do it again. Like maybe if you backslidden before, maybe if you're like, oh yeah, I got baptized at one time. And it's like, when was the last time I actually surrendered? When was the last time I actually surrendered? That's like a dirty word in 2022, right? Surrender? I read an incredible quote this week in a book I was reading. It says, we have no ability to fathom a version of life where we don't get what we want. And that's true both inside and outside of the church. We think the good life is us getting what we want. Well, why would we surrender that to God? Right? And church people, just like people who aren't church people, are like, yeah, the way to make me happy is that I get what I want. And Jesus actually said something completely different. He said, deny yourself. Like, what would it gain to get the whole world and forfeit your soul? He said, lose your life. Most of you are going to come next week, and 
you're going to see things happening here as people take that step for the first time and surrender their life to Jesus. And, and I'm going to tell you, you don't need to get back in the tub to have a powerful experience of surrender to God. That's something that exists in your heart, first and foremost. For others of you, you've never actually taken that step. You're like, oh, yeah, I know it's commanded, but uh, I, I, I'm not going to do that right now. That's a choice. That's fine. You can make whatever choice you want. That's between you and God. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not to be in the dentist here, right? We're not going to put your face on the screen. It's like, this person's not listening to God. But I am telling you that no, that's a choice, right? If you're comfortable with making that choice, like, hey, God, I'm not surrendering to you right now. Fine. Okay, but we're going to make an opportunity for people who are feeling that tug on their heart. They're like, hey, there's something God's doing inside of me that I need to show to the world that I'm in, that I'm going to do what he's called me to do. And what's going to happen is this. We will have a community of people, God's people, who are not perfect, not better than anybody else on the planet, but we are people who believe God understands us. We are people who believe God keeps his word. We are people who believe God is worth surrendering to and living our life for, just like we see happens in Moses' life. And maybe you have concerns. That's why we do a song at the end of service, right? So you can do business with God. Maybe you, gotta, maybe you feel the call surrender to God, but you're like, I need to pray. Fine, do that. We believe this God is worth surrendering to. We believe this God is worth living our lives for. We believe and have experienced that God is a covenant-keeping God and that he is as good as he says he is. Right? So I wanted to put that out there because I think it's an important idea of Moses being heard and seen and understood by God and yet still at the end of it all being called to make a choice. I don't think it's unloving at all for God to call Moses to make a choice. We kind of have that idea in 2022 that like to call anybody to identify where they're at is just unloving. It's like, or it's the most loving thing he could do because to stay on the path of indecision is the wrong path. I think there's probably people in here who God is calling to surrender to him. Maybe for the first time, maybe because you used to and don't anymore, or maybe because you're starting to not, or I don't know where you're at. The great thing about it is the Holy Spirit does know, so I don't have to know. But we're going to sing this last song, and it's an invitation for God to do the things that he wants to do in our hearts, like Moses is now experiencing, where he's having this understanding conversation with God, and at the end of it makes a choice. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll, uh, we'll sing this last song.